You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. This new series called the Jesus Stories, and a lot this year we've been talking about stories. We've been talking about how the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God, and Jesus, who spoke truth and taught truth all the time, like a brilliant teacher at times used stories to illustrate what he wanted to talk about with people, but today we're going to do something a little bit different. When you hear a story, you and I listen through Western ears and Western understanding, But when Jesus told stories, he told it through the mindset and in the manner and the style of Middle Eastern people. So they would hear it through Eastern ears and Eastern understanding. And sometimes when we read the Bible in English, we don't understand the degree and the richness to which Jesus is teaching. And so Jesus so often taught truth, but there were times that he utilized stories to make an impact, to draw the listeners in and to walk in a different way. And I want to walk with that a little bit so that you understand why Jesus told stories here today. He wants you to understand when Jesus tells a story, he wants his listeners, including you and me, to understand how our story fits within God's big story. He wants us to understand what does God expect? What does he expect of me? What does he expect of my life? He wants, us to, he wants to illustrate what God values, what is important to God, and why would he use a story to tell us, almost indirectly, what's most important to God. If you're taking notes today, write this down. Parables, the metaphorical stories Jesus told, are a window through which a larger reality is depicted. So he's going to give us this window, and the window is the story, but through looking at that story, you're going to understand your culture, and you're going to understand your motives, and you're going to understand your heart a lot better because of the story that Jesus told. That's how intentional he is about teaching. Second, understanding the message of a parable is bigger than simply identifying its point. So Jesus tells a story, it's this window, And he wants us to understand not just the point, but deeper, the message, the motives, the ideas behind it. And around Jesus right now are a lot of people listening. In fact, there's a crazy thing happening at the time that Jesus is teaching. And what's happening is this, that people are leaving the normal teaching that would happen to them in the synagogue and with the rabbis and other places. And they're flocking after Jesus because he's healing people. He's doing miracles. He's doing amazing things. And they're just, they're leaving in the sense, the organized religion of the time. And they're walking toward a relationship with Jesus. And they're just hanging on his every word. Well, this really ticks off some of the leaders who've been involved in organized religion. These guys are called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were people who were incredibly wealthy. Like, they got paid way too good. They were really wealthy. They were super entitled. They rested on their heritage and their culture. They were the kind of people who would normally teach the people, but now those people are following after Jesus, and they're frustrated. So they're kind of following around on the outskirts, watching what's happening as Jesus is beginning to teach. And these guys felt secure in their heritage. They felt secure in their social class. They also believed, all the Sadducees believed, there's no resurrection from the dead. They just thought you die and that's it. They're kind of like a lot of people today. They just think you die and that's it, that this life is all that matters. And one of the interesting things about this is, by the way, if you just erase the afterlife, what you're really doing is erasing any sort of accountability for what you do in this life. Pretty convenient, right? 
But a lot of people try that. And the Sadducees were among those who tried it. They just didn't think we can live wealthy. We can live entitled. We can live on our heritage and on our class. And we don't really have to care for other people. We can just teach and they must listen to us. And these are the kind of religious leaders that were the blind leading the blind. And Jesus is frustrated, and they're constantly trying to trap him. They're constantly trying to, to investigate him and try to poke holes in Jesus' theology. And these people believe that there's no resurrection, so if you die, well, that's, that's just it. That's the way it is. They also believe this. In this life, if you're wealthy, if you're healthy, then you're blessed by God. God must be smiling on you. But if you're sick, if you're poor, if you're troubled, then God must be cursing you. So they would never take a concern for somebody who was in bad circumstances because they just figured you're being cursed by God and we certainly don't want to undo the curse that God has put on you. Do you see how selfish that kind of line of thinking is? But I want to let you know that that kind of thinking is pretty prevalent today, not just back then. That today people think you're the master of your own fate. What you do only matters if it hurts someone. And the universe or the power of the universe has already decided what is available to you and all you got to do is claim it. And if you try to claim it and you hustle and you do all that you think that you can do and when all that is done and when all that has been said and life still hands you pain, well, I guess just the universe decided for you. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in a culture and in the face of that kind of just crazy thinking, Jesus begins to give this teaching to the people. He says this in Luke 16, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. You can't serve both. You've got to choose which of the two is going to be your Lord. Which of the two is going to own you? And Jesus is saying, now I'll tell you a story. I've made this teaching. You cannot serve God and you cannot serve money. You got to make a choice. So let me tell you a story. And the story is going to be about two people. One who served God and the other who served money. And so Jesus basically says, once upon a time. And he makes up a story, a parable that is a window to give us a bigger message. He says this in, well, let me, get, let me tell you why you need this sermon. You need this sermon because God will judge how you handle wealth and how you handle your painful experiences. Isn't that interesting to think that God's going to judge you and me on how we handle the good things that have been handed to us, our wealth, our whatever's good things, but also how we handle our painful experiences. How are we handling those? What do we do with our painful experiences? God's going to judge us based on both of those. So write this down. What you do with the gifts of life and the pain of life matters. It matters. What's been given to you, whether it's good or bad, and how you and I handle it actually matters. Well, in Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus tells this story, and he starts with the first line. He says this, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Help me out. He lived in luxury when? Every day, every single day. This was a rich man. He was a wealthy man. And he lived in luxury every day. Now, when, a, when we hear it through Western eyes, we're like, great intro to the story. That's great. Okay, I'm kind of hooked. What's next? But Eastern culture eyes, they think of it radically differently. They just go, wait, wait, wait. He lived in luxury what? 
every day. That's it. And that's shocking to them. You say, why? Well, this knucklehead, by the way, by the end of the story, you're going to hate this guy. I think you're not going to like him at all. And this knucklehead was a self-indulgent rich guy who cared for nobody but himself. And this man wanted to ensure that everybody else knew that he was rich. So he dressed in what color did he dress? What color robes? Purple. Okay, purple, only the rich could afford it. It was the color of royalty. You couldn't buy purple if you were poor. Only the rich could afford it. Not only did he wear purple for an event or for an occasion. No, he wore it every single day. Normally, a king or someone else would just pull it out when it was an event or an occasion. But Jesus is suddenly telling his listeners, this guy is wearing purple every single day. Not only that, but he's got fine linen on. And when he describes fine linen, he's talking about the guy's undergarments. The Hebrew word for undergarments is butts. I think there's some light humor in there, just saying. But what he's saying is this. Not only does the guy wear purple on the outside and wear this thing that is just like he just wears these great clothes, but he wore quality underwear in case you were interested. It wasn't just what was on the outside, but anything that would indulge the self, this guy was all about it. And it says this quote, Jesus said, he lived in luxury every day. That phrase lived in luxury can also be defined as feasted sumptuously. And we don't use words like sumptuously, but you get the idea, right? For this guy, every day he ate, every day was a banquet, every day was a feast, every day was Thanksgiving day, but he wasn't very thankful. He just, every day was just Thanksgiving feast, right? So he just had this feast out, every day was a cheat day. There were no other days, every day was a feast, every day was a banquet, and all the time, which means that every single day and every single week, he did not observe the Sabbath. His lifestyle meant more to him than the word of God. To a Jewish listener, you're hearing about this rich man. He's self-indulgent and he's ignoring the word of God. Let me just ask you, is your lifestyle more important to you than the word of God? Some of you just said, ouch. Ouch. Jesus is continuing this point. What point is he continuing about loving God and loving money? He's saying this, the car in your driveway, the watch on your wrist, the phone in your pocket, the computer you use, it all belongs to God and it's on loan to you and to me. How then will you manage God's stuff that he's loaned to you? Are we loving God? Are we loving stuff? Are we loving God? Are we loving money? And a deeper question, since when you and I die, we can't take that stuff with us, we leave it to somebody else, is anything really ours in the first place? I mean, do we actually take anything with us? The answer is yes. Yes, we take with us the small part of how we handled our wealth in this life is what we take with us. And you and I, will give account to the one who gave you and I all that we have. How did you steward? How did you manage? How did you handle all that I gave you? That's what we take with us. And so Jesus continues. He gives the first illustration of the first guy. The second guy, he says this, at his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you have the rich guy, but then you got the poor guy, and he's laying at the rich guy's gate. So whenever the rich guy went out or back in, he passed by this guy. He knew who this guy was. Interestingly, this guy has a name. Do you realize in all of Jesus' parables, nobody's got a name except this guy? When Jesus tells a story, he'll say, there was a priest, there was a Sadducee, there was a Pharisee, there was a Samaritan, there was a what? No one's got a name except this guy. You think maybe the name means something? You think the name might be important for us to understand what it means? To us, in Western ears, we hear Lazarus, we're like, yes, and. But it means something different. Lazarus means the one whom God helps. The one whom God helps. So the rich guy goes in and out every day from his gate. He passes by the poor beggar. The beggar is there. The rich guy never lifts a finger to help the guy at all. But his name means the one whom God helps. It's kind of ironic, right? Seems like nobody's helping this guy. And yet that's his name. So people listening to the story hear about the rich guy that they would assume, according to the Sadducees' teaching, that the rich guy is the one who God helps. And then you've got the flip side, and the flip side is this, that you've got this guy named Lazarus, and he's the guy that seems to be getting no help, yet his name means the one the Lord helps. Didn't appear like he was getting help from anybody. He desired food. It said he longed for food. He desired food from the rich man's table, but he never got any. He wanted it badly, but he never got any. Listen, the dogs got fed. The dogs got fed from the scraps from his table. And the dogs came down and ran out the gate, and they licked the man's sores. And and I just got to ask you, are are the dogs on the side of the rich man? Are they taking something from Lazarus uh, like the rich guy is because of the rich guy's dogs? And I would say no. In fact, the dogs are actually helping him. They're coming in, licking his sores. They're doing for Lazarus what he could not do for himself. And dog is doing for Lazarus what it would do to its own sores. It licks them because dogs have peptid antibiotics in their saliva. So the dogs aren't on the side of the rich man. Nobody's helping. Not even the rich man. But it seems like the dogs are at least doing something that the rich man isn't doing. Well, it goes on. Jesus describes this. He says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So what happens to Lazarus? In his life, The one who God helps, he's helped by the dogs. Now in his death, the angels come and help him, and now he's with the help of Abraham. In fact, it it gives this picture that he's leaning back against Abraham. In those days, uh, they would eat meals around a very low table, and everybody would recline. You'd lay on, like, your right side, and you would recline. You'd just reach out to the table, grab food, and, and everybody would just be kind of like laid around the table. And oftentimes what would happen at a banqueting-type table like that is that sometimes you just would lean against the person who's next to you. you just lean your head back like John did, the author of the book of John, the disciple of Jesus, at the Last Supper with Jesus. He laid his head back on Jesus' chest. It's like, my bro, we're just chilling, right? We're eating, we're having a good time, we're just, we're just hanging. And this is the picture Jesus describes that Lazarus is now at a banquet in heaven. 
and he's leaning up against Abraham. Of all people, Abraham, the father of the Jews, that this is the guy that now he gets to just lean up against. It's a beautiful picture. So let me ask, who's enjoying the banquet now? Lazarus is, but the rich man is not. The rich man is in Hades in torment. This is the description of hell where people go to await the final resurrection. And he looks across and he sees that Lazarus has a banquet while he's in painful agony. Jesus continues. He says about the rich guy. So the rich guy called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross from over there to here to us. The rich man, what does he do? He looks across, he sees Abraham, he thinks, oh good! There's Father Abraham, the father of all the Jewish people. I'm a Jew. And so he says this. He takes opportunity to remind Abraham that he is a family member, that family members are obligated to help other family members. So he says, Father Abraham, we're family. You're obligated to help me. I see, by the way, that you have Lazarus with you, so I'd like a few services. I'm not going to impose on you, Abraham. So would you just please send the beggar to help me now that I see that, you know what, it looks like he can get up and around. He's not just laying there anymore. His sores look like they've healed. And since he's mobile now, can you just get him up? I'd like for a few services from the beggar. What do you think Lazarus would say in that moment? That the guy in Hades still doesn't really see him at all. But here's the rich man that you and I are not going to like. He's saying, you're obligated to help me, Abraham. Abraham, I'm not going to impose on you. Please just send Lazarus to help me. I'm in pain. This must be done immediately. He's used to everything being done right away. I mean, wouldn't you expect for a moment for Lazarus to tell the rich guy off? Wouldn't you imagine him to say, listen, man, don't you remember when I was outside your gate every day and you didn't lift a finger to help me, but you're now asking me to come over there to you and help you? But I want you to notice this. Lazarus shows restraint in Jesus' story. He was silent as he was at the gate every day trusting in God. And he's silent now in the care of heaven, still trusting in God with his painful experiences and with the people who oppressed him. See, because what you do with your wealth in life and what you do with your painful experiences in life matters. It matters. So Abraham replies. He says, you called me Father Abraham? No problem. I'm going to call you son. So he goes, I'll acknowledge that there's a family connection. He says, son remember. Now, there are so many generations removed, it's not his actual physical son, but he's in the family line. But he says, son, remember, and on your outline, write this down. Rich man, you receive good things, now you're in agony. You receive good things in life, but now you're in agony. 
And Lazarus, he received bad things, and he's now comforted. What a unique word Jesus uses to describe this. Comforted. I think he's very intentional about the word he used. See, Jesus doesn't say, Lazarus is now healed, because that would refer to his suffering in life simply being his physical condition, his sores. He doesn't say, Lazarus is now well-fed. He's got a full stomach, because that would refer to his anguish in life, the bad things being his hunger. No, he says, Lazarus is now comforted. And it shows that his ongoing daily anguish was the degree of his suffering. Isn't it most often the psychological pain that hurts the worst? More than the physical pain, and physical pain is real. More than other pain, because pain is real. Hunger is real. But he's saying he's comforted. He's saying that the psychological pain, the agony he went through every day, being so close to help but receiving none, that now, in fact, Lazarus is the one whom God helps. He is now comforted. And what it's saying is this, that Jesus is giving a picture of future comfort to those who endured the most deep emotional hurts, those people who've endured the most brutal, ongoing health challenges and ongoing chronic pain. He's saying that people who understand what the gnawing hunger of starvation is like, that God knows and God sees and God hears and he affirms that there is future comfort for those who've had to endure those experiences in this temporary life. Listen to me. God sees what you've been through. God hears the cries of your heart and he absolutely gives future comfort to those who would put their trust in him. God absolutely helps. Are you open to his help? Are you open to being the one whom God helps? Or in your wealth have you forgotten God? Or in your pain have you accused God? Are you willing to be the one whom God helps? So let me ask, it matters. So how are you handling the pain of your life? Are you accusing God? Are you saying, God, you should have given me a better life. You should have given me better circumstances. Why won't you help me? Where are you when I need you so much? And you're accusing God. Or maybe for you, you've just written off God and you're chasing after all the things in this life that really can't satisfy because you think, well, if God's not going to do it for me, I guess I'll just try to get it for myself. And you're ignoring God's word. You're giving greater credence to what you want to do and what you want to experience than you are to the word of God in your life. And you're ignoring the word of God. See, we're weak and we struggle and we're mortal. And there are moments that you and I just give in to our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups. And God heals us in this life in community with others. The picture here for Lazarus is that he was isolated throughout life. But God gives healing for us in community with other people, and that's why you need to be in a circle group. It's why you need to be in a celebrate recovery if your hurts and habits and your hangups are constantly sabotaging your life. It's why you might need to be in grief share or divorce recovery or Christian counseling because in community, in relationship with other people, God often helps us. And that's a good thing. 
So if we're going to honor God with how we handle the painful experiences in life, we better make sure we also look at how we handle the wealth, the good things God's given us in life. Because death will reveal the condition of your heart. You see, you, you think that there would be sorrow. You think that the guy would be there in hell in agony and be like, oh, Lord, I've been so selfish. I'm so sorry. I repent. I, I repent of what I've done, and, and I'm so sorry. But I want to point out for you that this man in hell is absolutely unchanged. He's in torment, but his heart hasn't changed, not one bit. Not one bit. Luke 16, 27, Jesus continues in this story. So this is Abraham. Oh, no, this is the rich man answering. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And here's what is the amazing picture right here that Jesus is painting. Here's this rich man, and this rich man is this. He's saying, basically saying this. Listen, okay, okay, okay. Abraham, if Lazarus can't be a water boy for me to dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue because I'm in torment, if he can't be a water boy for me, then at least make him a messenger boy to go tell my brothers that hell is real. And Abraham said, no. They've been told just like you were and they refused to listen just like you did. And what does he say to Abraham? He says, no. Who says no to Abraham? Right? The guy in hell says no to Abraham. No, Abraham, let me correct you. He says, if someone rises from the dead, then they'll listen. And Jesus ends this story by saying, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What is Jesus forecasting to the listeners of this story. He's forecasting this, that there is resurrection, that there is one who will die and who will rise from the dead and sadly, some of you Sadducees and others will still remain unconvinced after I rise from the dead. That's what Jesus is saying. And the Sadducees knew he was speaking against them. Listen, there's only one in the Bible in the New Testament who rises from the dead that we will hear from. Jesus. He's the one who's gonna, who died for our sin, who endured the cross, who rose from the dead, who began to walk and speak and talk after that. The Bible gives no after-death interviews to any of the others who died and were raised to new life in the New Testament. Isn't that frustrating? Like other people, like they were dead and then they got raised to life and nobody took a pen and a piece of paper and wrote down, what was it like? And what did you see? And where were you? And was there a big chasm? Nobody did that. There's only one we ever hear from is Jesus. The Bible gives us no other illustration that we don't hear from Jairus' daughter, whom Jesus himself raised from the dead. We do not hear from Dorcas, who, who Peter raised from the dead. We don't hear from Eutychus, who Paul raised from the dead. As Paul was preaching on and on and on at night, about midnight, the guy got a, fell asleep. He's in the third story window. He falls out of the window. He dies, and we don't hear from him. And let me tell you, if you die today while I'm preaching, we're not going to hear from you either. 
And we don't even hear from the real life Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, whom Jesus actually raised from the dead. He wasn't a beggar at all, but he was the one whom God helps. Listen, why don't we hear from any of them? Why did no one take an interview? I'll tell you why. Because you're not saved by any of them. Here's why you'll never be saved by a life after death book. It's because there's only one life after death author. And it's not someone who had an experience and wrote a book on it. It's Jesus Christ, the living word, who came to life. It's only through the death and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which you and I are saved. So Jesus tells a story about a rich man, about a poor man. And I want to contrast it before we go into communion with this real account from Mark chapter 15, verse 16. It says this, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers, and they put a what color robe? Purple. They put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, and falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own linen garments, his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And then later in verse 24, it says, and they crucified him, divided up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. What do they cast lots for? His linen garments. Write this down. There is no opportunity for repentance after this life. See, the scriptures are clear that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but some will do it through gnashed teeth where they're just, they're having to admit it, but their heart is unchanged. That would be the condition of the man in hell. There is no opportunity for repentance after this life. By the way, there's also no opportunity after this life to witness. So what should you and I be doing? We should be talking to other people so that they don't end up there too. It all starts this. You're not saved unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter your religious background, your family heritage, your wealth, your standing, none of that matters. What matters is, have you given your life to the truth that Jesus died on the cross to cancel out your sin before Almighty God? And he accomplished it on the cross, that he was dead, he was buried, he was raised to new life. He is God. He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That Jesus is an advocate to say that I paid for their sin and I will offer you eternal life if you will put your faith and your trust in what I did on the cross. And if you believe that, then you will be saved. It's a free gift. I'll wash you as white as snow. I'll make you justified, just as if you never committed those sins. I will take care of it. And I'm willing to go through the worst torment of life 
to leave the comforts of heaven, to come to earth, to suffer at the hands of his own creation, people he loved, to be tortured and brutalized. He had already been whipped many times before they put that purple robe on him. Then they mocked him and hit him and spit on him some more. Then they took that purple robe off. How do you think that felt after your body began to attach to that robe? Then they put his own clothes back on him. Jesus is saying, I'll go through that torment for you. And I'll cancel out your sin. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just not distracting anybody around you, but just thinking about your own life. If today you'd like to say, Jesus, I'm going to put my faith in you. I want to be saved. I want my sins washed away. I want to go to heaven. Then you pray a prayer in your heart, right where you're seated. God hears you. He created you. He knows what you think. He knows what you feel in your heart. He knows what you say in your heart. So you pray a prayer like this right after me. Just say today, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried. You rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you to wash me as white as snow. Forgive me of all my sin. Make me a new creation on the inside. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, if you pray that prayer anywhere around the room, will you raise your hand? Anywhere around the room, that today was the day that you decided to pray that prayer right up here. Greatest decision you guys could ever make. Phenomenal. Anywhere else, that today is the day that you just said, you might be in the loft. My friends will see you up there. God, we're so grateful for you. We thank you, God, for what you have done as we go to a time of communion. God, we're so grateful to have today to remember that you went through the torment. You went through bad things in life so that we could have the benefit later because we are the ones that you're willing to help. God, what kind of love is that? How deep is that love? We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. We give it up for what God's doing in and through and among us in this place. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.